This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Happy Monday, everyone. Thanks for hanging out with us. Hope you had a beautiful weekend. Wow, we all deserved that, didn't we? Some time off. Yes, please. Finally, it's like, I feel like it's our first weekend where we weren't all watching cable news. Yeah, we were just watching Twitter, getting stressed over that. But uh, we're going to start a new countdown, or I guess count up. It's been nine days since Trump lost the election. (laughs) And I guess nine days since he hasn't conceded yet either, right? Yes, that's basically the same thing. Uh, And it's 39 days until Christmas. We like to include a positive thing with a negative. Yeah. (laughs) Or traumatic thing. That's how that works. Exactly. We're going to be uh, talking about Trump's meltdown over the weekend, the MAGA march, of course. And also we're going to be getting into how a record number of Republican women got elected to Congress this election and what that says about the Republican Party moving forward and the art of letting go. Because as we talk about conceding, there is something to be said about humans' inability to let go, including when you're at the level of the president. So mm-hmm. we're going to get some help from a psychologist around that. We're bringing in the experts. <laughs> but let's get into some what's trending this hour. Uh, President-elect Biden and VP-elect Kamala Harris spoke today about the state of the U.S. economy and how he and his administration plan to combat COVID-19 and restore business to pre-pandemic levels. And now here's his answer to the problem of long-term unemployment. I would pass the HEROES Act. It has all the money and capacity to take care of each of those things. Now, now, not tomorrow, now. And the idea the president is still playing golf and not doing anything about it is, is beyond my comprehension. You'd at least think he'd want to go off on a, on a positive note. But what is he doing? And there's virtually no discussion. And the Republican, we're told, I don't know if it's true. You may know, Senator, but there's 22 Republicans say they won't vote for anything. Well, there ought to be at least, at least a dozen of them have the courage to stand up and save lives and jobs now. Now let's move on to the million MAGA march that was held in Washington, D.C. over the weekend. Only a few thousand people turned out to the rally uh, behind soon-to-be ex-President Trump one week after he officially lost the election to President-elect Joe Biden. The event was organized by Women of Her America First and started at the Freedom Plaza around noon on Saturday. A lot of folks were wearing those red hats, chanting four more years while waving Trump American and Confederate flags. Now, the protest led to violence between Trump supporters and counter protesters. According to The Washington Post, on both sides, people were bloodied and at least 20 were arrested, including four whose allegiances remain unknown on gun charges. Well, to be honest, I don't even care about the on both sides part of that statement. But I, I think it's interesting and very telling that we did not see really hardly any police out there doing anything. Actually, there was a video of a police officer like trying to protect someone who was being uh, really pushed and hit and punched aggressively by a lot of those people who were labeled proud boys and the police officer couldn't even control them, didn't even do anything. And so it's just very telling what we're seeing versus, you know, them taking the streets from what we saw earlier in the months of this year. That is for sure. And uh, let's move on to what's happening in California. As we continue, Governor Gavin Newsom announced that 40 of 58 California counties just moved backwards. Some fell multiple tiers. Every single county in SoCal is now in the most restrictive purple tier, including OC and Ventura. And this closes indoor dining, gyms, effective immediately. He also used the announcement to apologize for attending his friend's birthday dinner 
in Napa Valley. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I appreciate the honest response. Uh, but, you know, he, he says he's human and he didn't realize there were going to be so many people there, which I feel like that's something that I've been through um, in this pandemic where you're like, I'm going to just go to a dinner with some friends outside. And you're like, OK, this is probably sketchy. However, he's the governor. He's the governor, exactly. I was about to say, yeah, same rules apply, but the governor has a little bit more stricter rules to follow. Of course, but at least he was honest, took accountability for his actions, and we're all trying to move forward. But let's get into some entertainment news. Ryan, what's the tea? Okay, so Candace Owens, we're so annoyed with her. I felt like she went back to the hole she came from in the ground or the pits of hell. Who knows? Well, she's now getting a whole bunch of news, and we're currently talking about her because she critiqued Harry Styles because he's on the new American Vogue cover in in which he wears a ball gown and custom Gucci jacket. Um, Here's what she had to say on Twitter. There is no society that can survive without strong men. The East knows this and the West, the steady feminization of our men at the same time that Marxism is being taught to our children is not a coincidence. It is an outright attack. Bring back manly men. Wow. I mean, uh, the tweet basically racked up more than 94,000 likes as of Monday Mm -hmm. evening, and she's refusing to take her words back. And I know it must be exhausting having to be her boyfriend and like be made to be manly and probably have no sense of emotions or being able to do anything. She's the worst. I mean, yeah, leave Harry Styles alone. And he looked amazing in that outfit. Just saying. But yeah, this uh, is obviously a bigger issue. And the fact that this got 94,000 likes shows how big of an issue it is and how uh, divided we still are on these very human issues. I I hate using that word again and again, but like just allowing people to exist and accept people as they are seems like it's It's something that decide can't handle it's a dress though it has nothing to do with his sexuality or anything brad pitt wore a dress back in the i believe in the early 90s of when he was actually on the cover of some magazine i just recently saw it but he was seen photo uh, photographs wearing a dress several dresses actually like there's just this idea of like oh clothes are are meaning you are feminine or masculine of course clothes are just clothes and so no matter what you know harry decides to sleep with it does not matter uh, when it comes to just wearing a dress, a, a ball gown. Like, grow up, Candace Owens, and find you some happiness. That's your tea report. <laughs> she doesn't get it, obviously, for sure. Okay, well, coming up from the mega march to the Twitter tantrum over the weekend, we discussed Trump's continued antics. Or is this a strategy? I'm confused. That's next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Well, we thought this could have been the weekend for a country to accept the election and move on. President Trump went on his typical Twitter rant, or some would say tantrum. As Jahan Jones wrote in the Huffington Post, Trump admitted defeat to President-elect Joe Biden in one tweet, falsely claimed the election was rigged in another, and retweeted a supporter who called Trump's opponents anti-American and anti-Christian all before 10 a.m. And back with us is Jared Hill, host of the Fanti podcast. Thanks for being here on this lovely Monday. Yes, thank you for having me. Now, Jared, between that and the Million MAGA March, how are we supposed to move forward? <laughs> oh, my God. Like, the Million MAGA March. Donald Trump is, is really in an interesting situation right now. I think his uh, niece uh, put it the most interestingly to me when she was talking about the way that, like, Donald Trump has never been in this kind of position before where he really doesn't have an out. He's, you know, his businesses have failed and he could be- file for bankruptcy or he could go start another one or... You know, he needed something and he could go get a loan or even in the times when he's been president, he's been able to rely on his attorney generals to like kind of protect him or the legal counsel. But like there's not really something like that for him in this election. Right. Like the votes are the votes, the counts are the counts and you Mm. can fight it as much as you want in court. But like as they found in court. They're not really having much success with that. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of people are bringing up, obviously, Hillary Clinton in a moment like this and how she said some things or made some jokes after she lost to Donald Trump and people were so hard on her and how she uh, reacted. What do you think about that now in this narrative that we should be basically apologizing to Hillary Clinton for how the world treated her? I mean, unpopular opinion. I think we should all be apologizing to Hillary Clinton for a lot of things. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know Hillary Clinton is not like a wildly popular figure in a lot of different ways, but I think that 
part of what makes this uh, win by Joe Biden over Donald Trump so poetic is the fact that Donald Trump spent those first two years of his presidency talking about the landslide victory, how there'd never been a victory this big before, yeah. blah, 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 which, of course, was not true. But <laughs> it's also really beautiful to see Joe Biden get exactly the same number of electoral votes and five million more popular votes than Donald Trump in this instance. And I think when we think about Hillary Clinton, like if there's anyone who has a little bit of room for, for sarcasm and being able to enjoy this moment is probably her. Yeah. So what do you think uh, Jarrett Hill, who joins us right now from the Fantide podcast, he's also a great political reporter and journalist. What do you think about Biden's strategy? It doesn't seem like he's being reactive, but more focused on actions, including announcing his coronavirus advisory team today. Yeah, I think that Joe Biden has been showing us what a president is supposed to look like. Right. And I think that it's been so long since we've seen that, like kind of seeing Barack Obama on book tour right now. We're kind of remembering like, oh, this is what a politician who is leading the world should behave like. Right. This is how they should talk about issues. This is how they should handle issues. This is how they should approach a problem. Um, and I think that we're kind of seeing that in, in Joe Biden and that he's not dealing with, you know, the BS of what Donald Trump has said or done. He's not dealing with the tweets. He's like, I actually have to be ready to govern here in about 60 some odd days. <laughs> I'm going to worry about this country and not worried about your Twitter feed. But don't you think it's still valid to like, and a lot of people feel that Democrats need to kind of be a little bit more strict or kind of not play the same game as we're seeing Republicans. Cause that would be over the edge, but being just a little bit more firm and aggressive when it comes into this moment of being like, are we really just going to let him kind of play out Donald Trump? You know, is Donald Trump just going to have to be, kicked out by security like what are we going to have to do to kind of get the ball really moving and i don't know if that means him being more aggressive what do you think well i think both of those things can be true um i've, I've long been a person who said that democrats need to to get some goons <laughs> to be uh, you know like quite frank. i think democrats need to get some unscrupulous un you know immoral people that are willing to do shopping uh, people at the knees fire. Listen, right, because, like, you have to fight fire with fire. And I think that oftentimes Democrats, you know, come to a gunfight with, like, a steak knife. And they're like, hey, guys, we've got our morals. We don't do that. No, with unicorns. We come in with unicorns, you know. Exactly, right? And, like, that's not really helpful. But I think Joe Biden's job is to get ready to govern, right? Um, And we've seen, um, there's been reporting about how, like, delays in transition can really have an impact on the country. And... I don't know if you guys have heard, but our country's going through a lot of things right now, right? Oh, yeah. And so we need this transition to go smoothly. So I think that Democrats that are not Joe Biden and Kamala Harris should be should be pressing on folks and being more firm about like Donald Trump has lost this election, period, right? They are lying about X, Y, and Z. But I think Joe Biden needs to be worrying about governing. All right. That's fair. Many are bringing up the 25th Amendment again, which provides procedures for replacing the president or vice president if he or she becomes incapacitated. So is that actually being looked at as a solution if he doesn't concede? I think the 25th Amendment is something we've been looking at since he won the last election, (laughs) to be quite honest. Right. I I think we've all been looking at Donald Trump and trying to figure out. But how do we get rid of this girl? Like, how do we get her out of here? One of the interesting pieces of analysis that I saw, someone was like, I wonder if he will come back after Christmas, right? Like if he goes to Mar-a-Lago in in December and and doesn't come back. I think there's plenty of like skepticism on like the ways that Donald Trump will handle this this transition. But I also think if we're looking at Donald Trump to be like, to be like other presidents have been, I think we're looking in the wrong place. The same way we don't expect him to go away into post-presidential obscurity, I think we can't expect him to move through this transition with any kind of regularity or or norms that we would expect. All right, Jared Hill, thanks again for being with us today. Absolutely. You can catch Jared Hill on the Fanti podcast. It's a great one, just saying. Uh, And coming up, the COVID-19 spike across the country is forcing leaders to step up with new restrictions. So are we finally in a place where the pandemic isn't a partisan issue? The Washington Post joins us to discuss that next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. As COVID-19 cases get worse nationwide, it seems like some Republican governors are finally implementing restrictions they had once fought. Joining us right now is general assignment reporter for The Washington Post, Hannah Knowles. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So one of the states making that shift is North Dakota. Do you think their lax position in our rigid measures is going to work? I can't say uh, whether it's going to work or not. We do know that mask mandates are effective. Like, that's what the science says. And so, you know, I think 
we see now this governor who has actually, he has encouraged people to wear masks before, but he was not willing, um, like some other Republican governors, to impose a statewide mandate saying, you know, it's really time to just say everyone needs to do this around the state. So I don't know, I think we'll see, it'll take a few weeks for these restrictions to kick in, unfortunately. And that's why you see a lot of, you know, governors saying we need to act before the numbers get really bad. And so unfortunately, now the numbers are getting really bad. And, you know, leaders are scrambling to make adjustments. Right. Can you break down what we're seeing um, as differences between red and blue state government officials, like as they're handling these surges? Like what are we seeing happening in the country in in those certain states? I think we're seeing both um, Republican and Democratic leaders respond to this surge because it is happening everywhere. You know, um, public health experts will point out how just how widespread this kind of latest wave of the virus is in terms of it's not just in, you know, the South or the East, it's really everywhere. And so I think you do see um, some more, you know, liberal governors, um, mayors reinstating some restrictions they had earlier. And then you see, um, you know, with North Dakota and Utah, some Republican governors who had been reluctant to take some of these statewide moves kind of finally, um, deciding to make these orders um, around their states. But do you think that has, especially for the red states and these the Republican governors, do you think that's the messaging is translating across the GOP part, like Republican Party, or is it just kind of happening slowly? And is that possibly going to impact what we're seeing when it comes to handling these things? It's definitely not across the board. I mean, it's not like we're seeing, you know, every um, reluctant GOP governor um, take new measures. And I think especially with the recent vaccine breakthroughs, a lot of leaders are hoping, you know, the the end is in sight, they want to just get through this. But I think you do have kind of a handful, I would say, of these more conservative leaders saying, hey, in the meantime, before this vaccine comes, we're going to have some really hard ones ahead. And we do need to take really strong precautions right now. Yeah. Again, you're hearing from general assignment reporter Hannah Knowles from the Washington Post. Now, places like even California, Governor Gavin Newsom has said, and we see this in Chicago with Lori Lightfoot, who is uh, implementing these stay-at-home measures, saying Thanksgiving, hey, it's not going to be the same Thanksgiving as we've seen in the past. You might not even be able to have Thanksgiving altogether. Uh, Can you talk about what states are imposing those restrictions? Yeah, I think pretty much across the board, I think you would hear from, again, those more Democratic leaders and a lot of Republican ones saying, hey, you know, this is not the year to get together with your family, you know, just don't do it. But at the same time, um, you know, there, there is some mixed messaging. And so, for example, in Texas, in El Paso, this community that's been hit really, really hard, their hospitals are full, they're literally flying people out of state for care. Um, you have a county official who wants a stay-at-home order. Um, he's a Democrat. And then that, and that very much clashes with, you know, the reopening that um, the governor has tried to do. And so you saw um, the Republican, like, attorney general in that state really kind of happy that the stay-at-home order was actually um, blocked by a court. And he said, you know, I'm not going to let um, a tyrant basically restrict your freedoms and prevent you from... I think seeing your family at holidays or something like that. And so, so I think that and, that, and that really outraged some people in the county who were like, oh my gosh, you have a, a really top official in the state basically saying, I'm not going to let people keep you from, from gathering during the holidays. So, so there's definitely, um, you know, leaders who are not taking up that strict messaging right now. And how could we see another shutdown kind of affect the economy and small businesses moving forward? I know that's a lot of the concern, a part of the conversation ha- conversation happening right now. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it'll be, I think, really devastating for small businesses. And these governors know that. And they are saying, you know, we're going to do what we can to get more assistance out there. But the reality is that there's just not the same, you know, momentum and level of help available from the federal government because Congress is deadlocked on this aid package. The president is kind of distracted by the election. He's really kind of lost interest in trying to address um, the pandemic, um, as my colleagues have reported. And so you have these states turning to kind of some of the same measures they embraced earlier in the year, 
but um, the help at the federal level to blunt the fallout from that is just not there. So I think we're looking at really potentially awful impacts for businesses if people don't get serious about providing that assistance again. Yeah, it seems like there needs to be a balance here. Thank you so much for joining us today for this. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. That was General Assignment Reporter for The Washington Post, Hannah Knowles. Now coming up, who decides who gets the COVID-19 vaccine first? The answer next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Who could get the COVID-19 vaccine first? Well, it's not up to Trump, although he might want to feel like it's up to him. It's actually the CDC. They're going to be the ones to make this decision. Now, while healthcare and essential workers and vulnerable groups such as the elderly will actually be at the front of the line to get any approved vaccine, there's a panel that's going to decide what order they go in. And that's according to CNN. I mean, that makes sense. It does make sense. But it brings up also, Ryan, a lot of ethical issues when you're in this place where you're like, okay, who needs it first? Yeah, I think that's true. Um, But I think I don't know if we're at that place yet. Like, I don't know if we're at the place where, you know, we're going to decide if, you know, kids get it, you know, later or our older people get it first or whatever. I just, I feel like right now we're in a space where, yes, it is disease, this virus is taking over our country and we have to do something quickly. But I do think, obviously, essential workers, healthcare professionals are going to get them first and then, like, passing it down to who, what, who has more of a way to survive. I think that could possibly be problematic. And then also if we're, if you're dealing with a hospital or we already know that, you know, black women specifically get the least amount of care when being at a hospital, like how is this going to impact disproportionately, you know, the communities who are already being affected? Who knows? But I don't know if we're there yet, but yes, this is something we need to be talking about. I do actually think we're there because with these vaccines getting announced and it seems like they are going to be available, not Uh, for mass distribution, but a certain amount of them will be available, you know, by the end of the year going into next year. They're saying that widespread distribution won't happen until the spring, but it does bring up these questions. And of course, yeah, bias comes into it. Who's deciding this, right? If, If they don't have a sense of the fact that Black and Brown communities aren't being given that attention? Are they going to put aside vaccines for those communities in need, right? And know that they might not get the attention. They might not be chosen first. According to Dr. William Schaffner of Vanderbilt University, he told this to CNN, frontline workers are expected to win the first shot of any vaccine. And that includes healthcare workers. After that, they're looking at what are essential workers? This brings up another question. right? And they're saying that's cops, supermarket employees, and how to rate vulnerable populations, which is actually what you just said. And that brings up biases, possibly, and ethics. Yeah, it could it could really be a messy situation. And to be honest, I mean, we this isn't the first time we've had an issue with our healthcare system and the idea of knowing who and when to choose who's going to get the the best care. We've always been talking about that. It's always kind of been at the the it should have been at the forefront, but unfortunately it's not until now when we're diving in to being in a pandemic. And so I'm hoping that we can really create something or the Biden-Harris administration can be really a part of that process and making sure that it is fairly distributed. Obviously, the CDC is going to be making a lot of the decisions, but I know that is going to be happening while under Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Yes, Donald Trump can take all the credit he wants for this, but he's not going to be doing any of the major actual kind of laying out the plan of what it comes for, because if it did, we are know black and brown folks would be uh, dead and gone, including me. Well, also, let's just, as we wrap this up, I say this, and I mentioned the CDC is making this decision because someone like Trump, who is still in office, he threatened the governor, Andrew Cuomo, and New York saying, you're not going to get any of the vaccine, right? And now Cuomo is threatening to sue the Republican administration if it moves ahead with its immunization distribution plan. He blasted Trump's distribution plan. He said it's discriminatory and said he's enlisting his own panel of experts to review any vaccine approved by the government. So that's happening. But to know that possibly bipartisan CDC, you would hope, is handling this, perhaps it gives us a bit more comfort or peace of mind. Now, coming up on the show today, we've got what's trending this hour, how Trump could crack down on China before leaving office as well. More details on that next. 
Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Welcome back to the show and coming up more on this new social network for Republicans called Parlor that is gaining a lot of steam, plus the art of letting go, because don't all of us, including the president, need some of that these days? Oh, I don't want to be grouped in with the president. Um, he's like his own case of not letting go. It's just it's it's really starting to be delusional at this point. Uh, you said it. <laughs> now let's get into some what's trending this hour. Ohio Republican Governor Mike DeWine told CNN's Jake Tapper that he believes the administration needs to begin the transition process with President-elect Biden. You know, Jake, I think we have to have uh, faith in our judicial system, faith in our electoral system. And I'd say this to both both sides of uh, of this, and I was certainly a supporter and remain a supporter of, of the president. But the president has every right to go into court every right to bring any kind of evidence that he has, and no one should begrudge him that or say that there's anything irregular about that. On the other hand, it's it's clear uh, that certainly based on what we know now that Joe Biden is the president-elect, and that transition for the country's sake, it's important for a normal transition to, to start through. And the president can go on his other track, his legal track, we should respect that, but we also need to begin that, that process. But before he does concede, President Trump is preparing a human rights and trade crackdown on China in the next two months in order to force President-elect Biden to continue a firm approach after he takes office January 20th. Now, a senior Trump administration official told The Washington Post this over the coming weeks, the Trump administration will continue to expand the depth and breadth of the historic actions it has taken over the past four years to protect the vital interests of the United States and its allies countering Beijing's predatory and coercive behaviors. So we're going to see a lot coming from him and the administration before he can let go. Now, close to 90,000 victims of sexual abuse that took place in the Boy Scouts of America are expected to come forward by tonight, actually. That's the deadline to receive compensation from the organization in its bankruptcy case. Yeah, this story is wild. Actually, I think uh, the Boy Scouts of America has more sexual assault cases than the the United States uh, Catholic Church, which is wild to me. But altogether, Hmm. this is incredibly disgusting. And the fact that they're trying to file like bankruptcy and all this, it just is some shady stuff. I was watching it this morning on uh, CBS News. I saw the little Uh segment that they did. It's crazy. Yeah, well, the victims range from ages 8 to 90. Three, mm-hmm. And while a vast majority of them are men, some women have also filed complaints. Like, what is that? I'm so happy my mother never let me do that because I, who knows what it, it could have been a good experience, but who knows what could have happened? You just can't trust it with numbers like that. Well, it's good that they're finally uh, taking accountability or the it, punishments will happen that needed to happen, right? Justice and, and maybe will be served. Yeah, that's the, that's the phrase I was looking for uh, because the trauma of these individuals, I, I can't imagine. So I hope they're getting hopefully a bit of closure here. But let's get into some entertainment news. What's going on, Ryan? All right, we call this the T-Report. And uh, Melina Dunham, she has opened up about her struggle to have biological kids. And I saw this story and I felt like that this was so interesting. And and I know she gets a lot of flack, some that I even give her. But she's opening yes. up in a new essay um, and about her failed attempt to have a child through in vitro fertilization and surrogacy, which she had to turn to after having her uterus and cervix and one of her ovaries removed because of endometriosis and some other like chronic health problems. She wrote in the piece, which is running um, in the December 2020 issue of Harper's Magazine. uh, She said, it turned out that after everything I've been through, the chemical menopause, surgeries by the dozen, the the carelessness of drug addiction, my one remaining ovary was still producing eggs. Um, She said, if we successfully uh, harvested them, they might be fertilized with donor sperm and carried to Hmm. term by a surrogate. Now, the doctor ended up telling uh, Dunham that five of the six of her eggs were unable to be fertilized, and the six had chromosomal issues, meaning that all eggs had failed to fertilize. And so... Wow, for her to be so open about this, and I even think about kind of after, you know, the Chrissy Teigen thing happens, like, it's a lot. It, I can only imagine how that bears on her. Yeah, it, it's heartbreaking when you deal with any sort of fertility issues. And so I, I'm, I'm happy that a lot of these women are coming forward to share these stories because this is something that 
a lot of women are dealing with everywhere around the world. Really, like so true. And I mean, I, I hope we ever we get a chance to interview. I would love to to chit chat with Lena Dunham. I know she is something else, but I feel like she has a lot of wonderful things to talk about and just uh, especially when it comes to our experience but let's move on in the tea report because honey we're gonna move into something a little bit more salacious okay. uh justin bieber's hot pastor you remember him pastor carl lentz Oh, yes, I do remember this. Well, he is now a disgraced Hillsong Church pastor because um, apparently he's going into hiding after being fired for um, being unfaithful in his marriage. Like the church fired him after, I guess, his uh, his side piece had came out and talked about how they had a huge affair. And it's so weird, actually. The mistress looks exactly like his wife, but like maybe like 12, 20 years younger. It's, oh. it's wild. If you're not familiar with him, he has preached to Kendall and Kylie Jenner, Chris Pratt, and Kevin Durant. And he got the beat. Apparently his uh, sources close to him said he's not returning anyone's phone calls. Friends have been trying to encourage him to hire someone to navigate the situation, but he's not responding. Justin Bieber actually started dissing himself from, from him over a year ago. And I guess apparently this pastor got a little in over his head and started kind of filling the lifestyle. Like he was popping bottles on private planes. The infidelity apparently wasn't a surprise. Like there is just so much to this story. I felt like, woo, what is going on here? <laughs> I know. I'm just looking at pictures right now. And it's like, you could just go into this whole reading about mm-hmm. this whole thing. And I'm going to tell you, you should do that. Head over to WeAreChannelQ.com right now to read more about this story and all the other entertainment stories. we got more to report coming up next hour. Yep. Well, now coming up, how a record number of Republican women got elected to Congress. We're getting into that right after this. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. There were a surprising number of women elected to Congress who are Republican. And according to this article in NPR, one woman in particular was a big part of this shift, Representative Elise Stefanik in New York. And joining us right now to discuss this and how it's going to impact the uh, GOP overall is Jennifer Piscopo, who's an associate professor of politics at Occidental College. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you so much for having me. So why are all fingers pointed to this representative Stefanik here? What's her background? Right. So Elise Stefanik set up a PAC in this election that was really focused on electing more Republican women. So PACs are political action committees. They're really important because what they do is take donor money, they redistribute donor money to candidates. And so what Stefanik was really focused on was getting more money into the hands of Republican women, Republican women candidates, so they could win in their districts. Historically, the party, the Republican Party, has not made a big push to elect women in particular. They haven't done a big fundraising push around women in particular. That's in stark contrast to the Democratic Party. So her PAC was one of the pivotal things in this election that helped elect more Republican women. Yeah, and I find this to be so interesting, but let's rewind a little bit because how should we really start viewing kind of a modern conservative woman in politics? Is she a feminist? Like, what what is that really? Because all I think about is like saying no to abortions. No. Right. Well, one of the interesting things about Republican women candidates in this moment is that they're actually pulling a little farther to the right than the party. So historically, Republican women were a little bit more to the left of the party. So they were still Republicans, right? But they were perhaps more moderate on some of these classic women or feminist issues. But there's some recent data that's showing that there's a big shift among Republican women. They're actually now, for instance, more conservative on abortion relative to Republican men. And that tells us a little bit about the dynamics that Republican women are facing in the election. We know that voters perceive women in general, any woman, to be more liberal. Right. So when Republican women are running, they have to actually overcome a deficit of being perceived as too liberal. And that might explain why we're starting to see Republican women take even stronger stances on the right. So they might be super supportive of getting more women in office, but they might definitely be to the right and maybe even a little to the right of their party mm. on some of these other issues that women care about. Wow, that's powerful. Again, uh, Jennifer Piscopo joins us right now as an associate professor of politics at Occidental College. Uh, yeah, now the GOP 
is said to have around one third the number of women that Democrats will have in Congress next session, according to data compiled by Rutgers University's Center for American Women and Politics. So what does this say about where the GOP is headed overall? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because we're talking right about a record number of GOP women that will enter Congress in January. That's 35 GOP women. Democrats have been above this number for ages. In the previous Congress, there were 88 women Democrats, 13 women Republicans. So one of the reasons we have a record number of GOP women right now is because the bar was really low. In the previous Congress, Democratic women outnumbered GOP women six to one. Even in the incoming Congress, yep, there's about 35 at this point Republican women. There's a few more races that haven't been called yet, but there's also 106 Democratic women that have have won. So we still see more women being elected by Democrats and we see more diverse women being elected by Democrats. Democrats have large numbers of women of color running and winning. The Republicans, some gains, right? They elected a Korean American woman here in California. Um, they elected a woman, a Latinx woman in New York, but they're really not um, they're really not caught up with diversity among their women candidates the way the Democrats are. And do you think this surge of just women candidates kind of entering into the political space, do you think that's like a, a response to representation, having a lack of that Republican conservative like female voice? Right. Well, certainly Elise Stefanik felt that the party, the Republican Party, needed to look more, more like its constituents. Yeah. Right. In the previous Congress, as I mentioned, there were 13 Republican women, but the Republicans held about 200 seats overall. That's such a small proportion of, of Republican women being part of the Republican caucus, that's not what the party looks like. We know there are plenty of women who vote for the Republican Party. So certainly that was a priority for Stefanik, the other donors to her PAC, but she's fighting an uphill battle within the party, right? The Republican Party has been challenged because it doesn't want to play identity politics. So if they say yeah. you should support this candidate because she's a woman or because she's a woman of color, that's really antithetical to the broader message of the Republican Party. So it's been an uphill battle for Republican women to get women's representation on the table in the party. Whereas for the Democrats, that's part of their ethos. It's very much part of their platform that they should be supporting candidates because of who these candidates are. Will these women change the Republicans' view on reproductive rights? Or I'm seeing the Second Amendment Republican woman. Can you explain the significance of this strategy and what policies they're pushing for? That's right. So Women have in, in the past in the Congress been able to work across the aisle on certain issues. We might see some of those issues still be salient. You might think about childcare. Certainly women Democrats and women Republicans, even though they might be heavily invested in their mothering roles, are in Congress because they have some childcare help somewhere. But I think we're going to see less progress on other issues that are more especially tied to the Democratic Party, like gun control, like climate change, and like abortion. Wow. All right. Well, thank you again for being with us for this. We appreciate it. Okay, great. Thank you. That was Jennifer Piscopo, Associate Professor of Politics at Occidental College. Now coming up on the show, how we can all use a lesson in the art of letting go right now. Dr. Josh Clavo helps us navigate that topic next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. The election is bringing up an overall pattern for a lot of us, our inability to let go of results, people, and situations. And joining us to navigate some solutions around this and why this even comes up is Dr. Josh Clapo. Thanks for being here. Good to be here, guys. Uh, so we're seeing this with the election, but obviously with President Trump as well. What's the psychology behind not believing you have a reason to let go? I would say it's directly correlated or associated with how much you're invested in whatever it is that you're not letting go. And I know that's obvious, but it really does help determine how easy or hard it is to let go when your life, your love, your passion, your dedication maybe your vulnerability. I mean, and again, I'm speaking broadly, when that's all in, then the reality of letting go can happen intellectually. It can happen in your mind. I, you know, yes, it's over, whether it's the relationship or the presidency, or even to some extremes, guys, when somebody dies, we know that that's happening, but emotionally, we're not there yet. And again, the more intense the relationship then the harder it is to let go emotionally as well as intellectually. And I think that's what you're seeing to some degree here. 
I mean, I know there's some caveats, but I think that's what you're seeing. And my thing is, does it rely on just how intense the relationship is, but does it also rely on how intense maybe the the situation around you Mm. is? Because right now I feel like we're in such the high pressure moment of everything from the pandemic to politics to just seeing just a mess probably in our own personal lives. Does that play into it as well? You know, I'm going to sound like a psychologist here, so I apologize. Please. But it depends because what you tend to get is this kind of bimodal or bifurcating response. For some people, it makes them dig in more. The intensity, there's too much going on. There's so much I I can't let go. Now, on the other hand, though, Ryan, you you see exactly the opposite. I'm actually seeing more of the opposite with, with a lot of my clients. The I'm done. It's over. I'm checked out. I'm seeing people in industry, you know, do this in their jobs who have good jobs. I'm seeing people doing their relationships because of the intensity. So I really think it can go either way. I also think, and this is where it's hard for this us as humans, when there are little bits of information that we can interpret in different ways, like signals mm-hmm. that maybe it's still there, maybe it's worth it, maybe it's not over then emotionally we just latch on to those and we give ourselves justification for not letting go. Yeah. You're saying something that is really true. It strikes a chord with me because I did tweet and we're talking to Dr. Josh Claypo, who's a clinical psychologist. I tweeted last night, Donald Trump is like that guy you dumped, but who keeps texting you and doesn't accept that you've broken up, even though you've moved on, you've reminded him multiple times, you don't answer his calls and you've blocked him. I mean, look, here's another example. And again, I think it's important that we don't give just political examples because it's related. Think about the person has a family member or loved one or a friend who's on life support system. Mm. And they have to make that decision to let them go. Right. And you think about it, if you've ever been in that situation, you know, intellectually what needs to be done, but you hang on to either hope or fear of what your decision will do. And I will tell you this, and I don't know President Trump and people have said all kinds of things, but we all know that once he says, I concede, then it's done. I mean, it's done in his mind. So that is the last string that he has. And whether he's not saying it for political reasons, personal reasons, or that he believes it's not over, I don't know. But we know that that's the last piece. But And that's the hardest one to let go. Dr. Josh, though, do you seriously believe when he says he's concedes, it would be done because it feels like this is going to kind of continue. We'll see it pop up obviously throughout history. So can something like that really even for sure be done? Well, and this is now it gets broader because, and we talked about this before we, we decided, you know, sort of where we're going with this. He may concede. Let's just say he does. He's got passionate followers who may say, no, (laughs) you conceded, but we're not. This is why we're so divided right now. And again, this goes back to what I was saying in the beginning. When we invest ourselves in anything, the more we invest in it, whether it's good, bad, right, or wrong, the harder it is to unplug, to go back what Shira said. If this is the guy that you broke up with and he's totally invested in you and you've told him you never want to see him again, you got to keep texting you and texting and texting you because emotionally he's too connected. So what are we all supposed to do in scenarios like this as we wrap things up to find some peace and move on with our lives. I'm going to say this. This is one that has to play out a natural rhythm. You can't just cut it off. The best thing that you can do is to be, I hate this, to be as civil as possible to one another, to not get nasty at one another, because to let the emotions go, it literally takes time until we move on to something else. And to Ryan's point, this is going to take time, not just weeks, weeks, months, in some cases, years, but you have to let that happen at its own pace. And the worst you can do is harm somebody, you know, as this thing is playing out. Let go of what you can't control and focus on what you can control, which is really your own life and your own actions and uh, being the best person you can be to yourself and others. And also, I I would win Olympic gold for holding the longest grudge ever. So, you know, I'm I'm working on it. It's fine. (laughs) Oh, amazing. I I knew you were good for something, Ryan. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right. Dr. Josh Claypo, thanks again for joining us. Thanks, guys. Now, coming up, there's a social network for conservatives that's popped up and 
it's called Parlor. More on that next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. As social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook are cracking down on misinformation, conservative users are actually moving to a new platform, and it's called Parlor. Okay, so in in French, parler is to talk, but it's pronounced parlor like the parlor in English. Okay, yeah. <laughs> just had to let you know. Thanks for the now, French update. It shot to the top of Apple's trending apps list in the wake of the U.S. election. Downloads were like soaring by two thousand percent between November seventh and November 9th. They have like so many users and downloads a day. I guess on November 9th alone, the number of downloads surpassed 500,000. And as of late July, the app had uh, reported more than 2.5 million users. And I'm sure with these latest numbers, they're even beyond that. So what does this say about where we're at? And is this the next Facebook for conservatives? This place (laughs) sounds like a place where racists can just roam free and say the N-word and say that they wish that the nation and the world was just all white. That's what it sounds like this place is. And if that's your type of place, go for it. I'm just happy folks are getting up off of the places where I am, you know, the Instagram and the Twitter, because they don't feel welcome there anymore. And they're finding their own place because guess what? Now they're in an area where there's, it's like-minded. Yes, it can be very ignorant and dangerous. Yeah, that's great. But put all, it's like putting all the dummies on one island and just kind of leaving them there to rot, because that's kind of how I see it in all honesty. If they don't want to wear their mask, if they're going to have, you know, blackout days where they're just not wearing their mask keep them damn people over there in their in their maskless world so they can all just go choke that's all I, that's honestly how i feel <laughs> um, if you asked me and i'm giving it to that, you that was a great monologue actually the monologue of 2020 i mean yeah it, it does remind me of a bit like well i'm not going to say idiocracy even though it feels like we're heading there at a, a certain point but definitely it is its own eco chamber and it seems like they found a place where they can feel safe and not called out and not censored. So this is how it works. A user can post text or images. Other users can then comment on that, give a vote of approval or echo, which appears to be the parlor version of a retweet. That's right. Is it Reddit? That has a bit of a Reddit vibe, yeah. Unlike Twitter, it appears to not offer a discover page or trending topics. Instead, you actually need to seek out and search for the accounts you want to follow. And these are the two rules. They do have rules, by the way. And okay? so you have to be a committed white supremacists and racists. Like, you got to go search. You got to do some work to be able to get your feelings out. Exactly. So first rule, no posting anything unlawful. So you can't post anything unlawful. Two, no spam. But Parler does not remove content based on politics or ideology, they said in a statement, and is dedicated to free speech. Yeah, that sounds awful. Every First of all, all of these platforms, let's be clear here, all of these platforms have free speech. You're allowed to say whatever you want, but when it starts to be problematic, when it starts to, you know, incite violence on large communities, when it starts to be, you know, a white supremacy, Yes, harassment. harassment, That is when these platforms are going to say, oh, wow, this is not okay," And they're doing something about it. I mean, what you really want to be able to say that awful stuff that you want to say so bad. It's really boiling your blood that much. It makes no sense to me. It's not just that, even though that is a big part of it. It's the whole information saying like, oh, you're being flagged and people aren't going to be able to see your content if it's not cleared as valid or verified. Yeah, because it needs to be factual. So they want to be able to live in their conspiracy K-holes and just feel happier than ever. Like literally just. Yeah, exactly. So already, and we're going to wrap this up, but this just keeps getting better and better. Uh, Already a number of high profile conservatives are on the app, like Senator Ted Cruz, Republican politicians, Jim Jordan, Elise Stefanik, who we've talked about, Rand Paul, Nikki Haley are on it. And supposedly they're trying to get the biggest of all of them, the king of the castle, President Trump. So we'll see, depending on how things go down in the next few weeks or month, if he ends up leaving Twitter anytime soon for Parler. Well, I hope there are some wonderful journalists there 
and I'm hoping that they take note of any any major one of those people, those prominent people that you said, and if they over there talking some mess, let's expose them. Yeah, let's, journalists need to be there right now because I'm sure we'll be seeing some articles about what they found on Parler very soon. Uh, now, coming up on the show, we've got what's trending this hour. Uh, the Georgia Secretary of State, who's a Republican, is calling out Senator Lindsey Graham for some you know, very problematic things right now as it relates to the vote. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. How would a national mask mandate actually work? We're getting into that coming up on the show. And again, we like to remind you that we post all these shows as a podcast. So if you miss anything, you can catch up on everything on the Let's Go There podcast on the radio.com app and where podcasts are available. And honey, I can't wait to have that conversation about the mask mandate because we need it more than ever. But I don't know. Joe Biden is going to get a lot of pushback. Yeah, and we'll see how he could actually do it because there is a way. There is a way. Uh, But let's get into some what's trending this hour. John Bolton, former national security advisor, has called on leaders of the Republican Party to come forward and recognize Joe Biden as the president-elect and inform voters on how claims of voting fraud are baseless. And this is what he had to say on ABC's This Week. I think this is a character test for the Republican Party. I don't buy the argument that Donald Trump has hypnotized Republican voters or that they're not capable of accepting the truth. This is this is a myth uh, that's, that's being perpetrated that's simply not true. But it requires people uh, to explain what happened. Uh, the, 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 the Trump campaign simply has no evidence. Their basic argument is this was a conspiracy so vast and so successful that there's no evidence of it. Now, if that's true, I really want to know who the people are who pulled this off. We need to hire them at the CIA. The fact is, this is all uh, blue smoke and mirrors. And I think people will accept that if they see leaders they respect explain it to them. Now, according to the Washington Post, Georgia's Secretary of State, who's a Republican, Brad Raffensperger, says he has come under increasing pressure from fellow Republicans, including Senator Lindsey Graham, to question the validity of legally cast absentee ballots in an effort to reverse Trump's loss. And so now everyone is tweeting about Lindsey Graham and how if this is discovered that he actually pressured him to lie, then he should step down. But we'll see if that happens. Now, with members of both the local Democratic and Republican parties observing hand counting of presidential votes in Floyd County, it appears that close to 3,000 ballots were not counted on election night. According to Board of Elections Chairman Tom Reese, he said the hand count added 2,631 more votes than were registered by computers. That number was increased today after nearly 20 hours of hand counting over the weekend. Imagine you like applied for the job to help with the ballot counting and right. then you're stuck with this <laughs> 20 hours of hand counting. Now, remember, uh, just as a reminder, Floyd, Floyd County is in Georgia, by the way. That's why this is a whole Georgia piece, which has been the center of a lot which of Which Biden is still, I feel like, tr- like he is leading in the numbers. So it, it doesn't really matter at this point. Yeah, and it appears that votes did not come from day of voting or absentee votes, but rather early voting. According to Luke Martin, Floyd County GOP chairman, he said, it is scary that this happened in Floyd County. Imagine what the numbers could look like in places like Fulton County. It appears that our elections office did not misplace any ballots. Rather, it appears as if this is a computer software mishap with Mm. the Dominion system. As the wise words of Beyonce on stage during a concert She said, somebody is getting fired, and that is what's going to happen here. Yeah, that's for sure. And that was what's trending this hour, but what's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so we got a wild tea report, so go ahead and strap in, because Claudia Conway, you know, Kellyanne Conway's daughter, she's not only just, you know, slaying it on TikTok, which we haven't really seen much of. Well, she kind of surprised everyone, because she just teased the fact that she is trying out for American Idol. Like, literally, she did a video of her, like, basically a TikTok in which she says she's about to audition and was in the process of filming her confessional. Uh, Claudia also says she's already met Ryan Seacrest. Here is her TikTok. Hey, guys, I'm here at American Idol confessional. Um, I met Ryan Seacrest today, and I have my audition soon, so... Stay tuned for that. Very, very nervous, but very excited. Oh, my God. I saw this over the weekend because I do follow Claudia Conway on TikTok. Of course you do. You know, it's for my work. (laughs) Research Uh, And I was like, what is going on here? Like, what is 
actually it's, going it's on. wild who knew i mean my thing is i didn't even know she could sing I, all you do on tiktok is lip sync to other songs so who even knew um but maybe this is just a, a stunt from american idol because apparently she's go- she actually got close to Katy perry lionel richie and the other guy i don't know his name the third host Jeez. who cares it doesn't really matter he's a country music artist but yeah oh. so we'll see once that um what we'll see once that happens and that's live because it'll be interesting to see her on american idol but moving on after nearly a year and a half of beefing with scooter Braun, mm-hmm. um and taylor swift uh scooter Braun has said goodbye to taylor swift's masters of recordings unloading it for a pretty penny it has reportedly sold the master rights to taylor's first six albums to an unknown investment fund the buyer reportedly dropped north of 300 million dollars for the deal which closed mm. a couple of weeks ago um now taylor swift did take to twitter where she basically saw all all the conversations happening and she wanted to kind of clear up some of everything happening so she said this third party this unknown investment fund actually reached out to her and they scooter bronze legal team and according to this letter she says a few weeks ago my team received a letter from a private equity company called shamrock holdings letting us know that they had brought a hundred percent of my music videos and album art from scooter Braun. now we're going to fast forward a little bit the letter told me that they wanted to reach out before the sale to let me know but that scooter Braun had required that they make no contact with her or her team or the deal would be off this feels a little sketchy right like that feels yeah i mean there's a lot going on here and it it would probably suck to know that you kind of like someone got what how much money 300 million yeah that of your music and taylor swift was actually willing to work with shamrock holding according to her letter she posted on twitter but she said that in their contract between shamrock and scooter scooter was still going to somehow be able to make money so taylor swift said that is a no starter for her and she is not going to be working with that other company so i don't know head over to her twitter at uh, taylor swift of course um on twitter and check it out find more about the story and we're channelq.com I feel like it's only going to get juicier from here. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. Okay, coming up on the show, is it actually possible for Biden to impose a national mask mandate? Well, Dr. Amish Dalja from Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security joins us for that next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Is there a national mask mandate on the horizon? Well, come January 20th, if it's up to President-elect Joe Biden, this could be a reality. Tweeted, I won't be president until January 20th. My message today to everyone is this, wear a mask. Back with us is Dr. Amesh Adalja, who's a senior scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So how can a mask mandate actually be implemented? So what we would see is probably not the president issuing a directive that everybody wear masks when they can't social distance. What you would see in our federal system is that many state governors would issue those, and there are many that are in effect right now. And then for those who hold out, you would see the president and his coronavirus task force trying to work with the governors to try and get them to issue something uh, of a mandate for their state. And if that doesn't work, you can go to the county level or you can go to the city level or the municipal government level to try and basically create a de facto national mask mandate based on what states and and local and and municipal governments are doing. Yeah, are there countries that we can look to as examples who have already kind of done nationwide mask mandates? There are many countries that that have done that. But the, the question is, is that, do they have a system of government like ours? And we have a federal system where the power is kind of vested with governors and and county executives and county commissioners and even mayors. So it's not, the the president can't necessarily intervene in those levels from a public health law standpoint. So that becomes very difficult just for it to be something that he can just issue or say, this is going to be what happens because the governors, they're going to be people that would challenge that, whether it exceeds the federal authority over the states. And and I think all of that constrains how, how it works. And I think what's more important than having a national mask mandate is actually convincing the population to wear masks, Mm. because even if there is a mask mandate, it's not going to be enforceable. It's not going to be something that you're going to have people getting citations or tickets for. It's really going to still depend upon compliance and what a mask mandate would do or even the rhetoric around it does is reinforce that there is evidence and data that wearing masks is something that's really important to stopping the spread of the virus. And I think that's more important than rather whether we get an official mask mandate on the books. Yeah, and we actually have reported about some states doing some sort of citation or a 
uh, a warning to businesses who either like, you know, don't enforce this actually. So I, I could see this happening a bit more, but it is hard with how divisive it is right now in our country and how it has been politicized. Do you think that? Definitely. And I think, you know, part of this comes from misunderstandings about science because early on in the pandemic, we were unclear about transmission because we had never seen a coronavirus spread when people didn't have symptoms. So that was why the initial recommendations were that we didn't need to have the general public wearing masks if they weren't sick and didn't have symptoms. But then the evidence started to accumulate that there were cases where people were transmitting when they didn't know that they were sick. And that's where that shift occurred. And I think because of that pivot, it put a lot of I think doubt in people's mind and they weren't really understanding that science is going to change in a pandemic, especially with the novel virus as we learn more and that's to be expected. And now in November, 10 months after this pandemic has really started, we've been able to get evidence that shows that in places where there is high mask use, you have decreased infections. And now there's even data that wearing a mask protects you as the wearer because you get infected with less amount of virus and that may influence how severe your illness is. So all of that data is out there now. And I think that's something that we have to try and, and emphasize and get away from the politics of whether your favorite politician recommends or doesn't recommend a, a mask. Definitely. Again, we're talking to Dr. Amesh Adalja, senior scholar from Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, about a possible ma national mask mandate. So uh, with all the confusion around kind of the, the narrative, should we even be using the phrase national mass mandate to describe the Biden-Harris proposed plan? Because it doesn't even really seem like that's what it is in the first place. Well, I think it's a shorthand way of understanding what we want to get is universal mask wearing when people are not social distancing. And whether that's a mandate or whether people do that voluntarily, the goal you know, is the same is to get people to, to take this simple common sense measure. And maybe when you use the word mandate, it triggers people and, and they then automatically rebel against it rather than saying, you know, this is guidance. This is national mass guidance. And that might be something that people find more palatable and much more likely to comply with. So what are your thoughts now on this new board of advisors that Biden is putting together versus Trump's coronavirus task force? I do think that the fact that that Joe Biden named this coronavirus task force as one of his first things after he was declared the president-elect really shows that there that this is a priority that the new government is going to pursue and that they're going to really move into action on day one. And most of the individuals on that task force, I at least know personally or have had contact with, and they are some of the brightest and best minds in the field. And I do have a lot of confidence in them. There are also good people on the White House task force. It's just that they've been silenced and handcuffed. And that task force is really non-functional at this time. And it's really been polluted by politics. And I think that it's become ineffectual over time. So I do think that this Biden task force should automatically or just right now start addressing the public. And, and you see the members out on television really talking about what the, the Biden plan is going to mean in action. And I think that's good because we, we've sorely lacked guidance from the right. federal government. And right now it's basically absent. We don't see anything from the president or from the task force. All right. Well, Dr. Imesh, thank you again for being with us today for this. Thanks for having me. Uh, that was Dr. Imesh Adalja, senior scholar from Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. If you're wondering, there is data around this that shows that areas with high mask usage see fewer cases of COVID-19 and a decrease in new infections as the use of masks go up. One recent study estimated that universal mask use in America could save 130,000 lives. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. We're wrapping up the show with our Yaz Queen of the Day. Yeah, Yaz Queen. Now, La Mirada is a small family-run restaurant in the Bronx. It opened in 2009. It's won, like, Michelin stars for its Oaxacan food. And it has also served as a soup kitchen during the pandemic. Now, in addition to serving paying customers, it makes about 650 meals a day Ooh. for the unemployed, yeah, New Yorkers who live without gas and can't cook, older adults or the disabled. <gasps> Oh, you know, I love stuff like this. It kind of reminds me like one of the, the I feel like the good things when I can say about religion when I was growing up in the church, we would do a lot of stuff like this. Our our kitchen, like black churches are known for throwing down in the kitchen, like the meals just be on it. But I, I remember we would literally go Christmas caroling, especially around the holidays in nursing homes and our church would cook and we would give them it would give it out. And like this feeling of just coming together and making an impact in real mm -hmm. life situations 
has always stuck uh, with me, even from a young age. Like, this is beautiful. Yeah, the owners are Mexicans who are activists who say they speak up in defense of immigrants without authorization to live in the U.S. Mm. Uh, They have a sign that says no deportations that hangs on their door. They describe the soup kitchen, yeah, as fulfilling work, saying we always say that activism is our secret spice. Yes. So, yeah, I feel like it was just very natural for us to serve the community with what we have that comes from the co-owner of the restaurant uh, with her parents, uh, Yahera Savedra, who said it also goes back to our indigenous roots when we all pitched in, gathered small ingredients and made a big pot as a meal. So that's mm. beautiful. Come on, you better si- uh, sign me up for a side of activism. I love that. That's Yeah, I love it too. And that's our Yes Queen of the Day. Yeah. Yes, Queen. And uh, super real quick, uh, I did have an honorable yes, Queen, that I wanted to give over the weekend. Uh, Okay. So, you know, when we've been talking about kind of disconnecting and trying to just kind of find ourselves and like just getting away and and trying to escape a little bit, Mm -hmm. I will say one show that is doing that for me is the Great British Baking Show on Netflix. The UK UK calls it the Great British Bake Off. But if you watch it on Netflix here in the States, it is called the Great British Bake Off. Baking show, and when I tell you them UK folks be over there baking they behind off, it has it, it literally every time I feel like I'm transported into another world. I've already watched four or five seasons, and it has eight collections, and so I'm what? very, very um, I'm obsessed with it, and it's been such an escape, and it makes me um instead of like going to get sweets, I just like kind of pretend like I'm eating it through the screen, and then I'm good. That's what I'm saying. Oh, I was gonna say this is making me hungry, but you're saying it, it stops you <laughs> from eating. Not- Stops me from eating the treats because okay. I see how okay. much sugar and everything. It's just wonderful. Please check it out. It's it's heartfelt. It's no major drama, and it's just watching people cook, bake in a competition type style. It's amazing. Thanks for the recommendation, as always, Ryan. You're welcome. And that does it for our show today. But we're back tomorrow weekdays here for you on Channel Q Live, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Now, coming up on tomorrow's show, what is the future of political comedy in a post-Trump world? Mm, I love that. Yeah. Plus, is the official second lockdown here? Are you ready? I mean, to be honest, I'd rather have one more lockdown so we can get past this and everyone's just inside the house. And then, you know, we can go out and live our lives like we would normally kind of want to, you know? Yep. Right. That would be good. Let's do it. Let's do it together. We can do it. Uh Remember, we've got Loveline with Dr. Chris after our show Monday through Thursday. So stick around for that. They're going to be talking about signs of outgrowing friendships. (laughs) Wow. I mean, maybe we'll hang out for that one, too. I feel like they've been literally just watching my life because that is, oh my goodness. Trigger alert. And remember, uh, yeah, we post everything as a podcast. Just go to the radio.com app or where podcasts are available and search Let's Go There. We are sending you love and light. And honey, remember to slay. See you tomorrow. Have a great night. Bye, y'all. Let's Go There with With Shira and Ryan. The new Channel Q.